Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is David McCloskey. He is a former CIA analyst who covered Syria for six years from 2008 to 2014, wrote memos for the president's daily brief, lived and worked in field stations throughout the Middle East, and briefed senior White House officials, members of Congress, and Arab royalty. He draws on his experience with Syria for his new book, Damascus Station, a spy thriller set during the 10-year Syrian war. Dave McCloskey, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. Your book comes with some high praise from people like General David Petraeus, the former head of the CIA, who calls Damascus Station, quote, the best spy novel I have ever read. If we could start just by, um, let me ask you to lay out the, the plot of your book and how you came to write it. Yeah, no, sure thing. Um, so, you know, the book, uh, as is probably fairly apparent, is a spy novel. Uh, it's set in really, so the, the first page says the early years of the Syrian war, but it's really kind of a mashup in some ways of what 2011 to 2013 was like. So really the first, the first two years of the conflict. Um, it follows a CIA case officer named Sam and uh, his Syrian uh, recruit, Mariam, who break one of the you know, cardinal rules of espionage and fall into a, a forbidden relationship. They go into Damascus to hunt down the, uh, the killer of another CIA officer. And uh, you know, in that process really kind of come face to face with a lot of the, the tension and the conflict and the passion in their own relationship, um, as well as come face to face with a very uh, dark secret at the, at the heart of, of the fictionalized Syrian regime in, in my book. Um, yeah, it's it's a book about espionage. It's a spy novel, after all, um, but it's also about love. And I think ultimately, or I hope, it's a book about what it means to be human in the middle of a very inhuman conflict. Um, and I uh, I wrote the book. You know, I, I I left the CIA as you mentioned in 2014, and you know I had I had worked on. Uh, among other things, Syria for for a number of years up to that point. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of times the writing, the thinking that we we do in, in you know, in, in intelligence is very sort of anodyne and, you know, sterile for a lot of good reasons, um, you know, sort of uh, removing of, you know, it's not value laden or, or policy prescriptive. Um, you know, we're trying as best we can to be very objective. But that also means that when you're covering something that's pretty emotional, uh, like a horrible conflict uh, that's ripping apart a country, you know, you, you come out of that with uh, weight on you, right, and, and a desire to um, process those emotions and to think through what they mean. And so as I started to sit down and, and write, um, and it was, by the way, the writing process, I, I wrote a lot in 2014 when I left, and I wasn't able to come back to it for another five years um, and, and really finish the book, you know, uh, in kind of that second that second go round, but um, you know, I really wanted to uh, through the eyes of my characters to get Syria right as much as I could. Um, you know, to to reflect the conflict through the lens of a lot of different types of people, and to bring the reader into into the war and into what I what I think is you know the sort of um, wide range, really the full range of human emotion that it, it brings out: heroism, bravery, self sacrifice, um, tragedy brutality and humanity on the other end. And so I really wanted to, to capture that in the book as much as I could. The second thing I wanted to do is I wanted to get the, get the CIA right. Um, 
you know, a lot of, a lot of spy fiction out there, um, fun as it, it can be, you know, it doesn't really deal authentically with uh, not only just sort of the tradecraft of the agency, the way it works, um, but the, what I think is kind of the, the moral code or the, 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 you know, sort of ethics of the place, right, in, in a realistic or, um, you know, sort of fair way. And so I wanted to kind of get the, get the CIA right as well. So I think as I was sitting down to write the book, those two thoughts were in my head as I put together the plot and the characters and Damascus Station, the novel is what came out of it. One of the themes I picked up from the book is that you're trying to get into the heads of people, including people who are not on your side of the war, who are on the Syrian government side, of how they would act just in their best self-interest in really tough situations beyond their control. Is, is that a fair way to look at how you approach the book, including writing characters that were on the other side of the war? Yeah, no, certainly. So, you know, I think one of the unfortunate things about the conflict and in, in the way that it's sort of been characterized here in the United States, certainly, but uh, I, I think more broadly as well is kind of, I'd say there's like two ends to this. There's one end, which is a very cartoonish sort of, there's an us versus them, and there's clear good guys and bad guys, and it's kind of easy. And then on the other end, it's like, it's so complicated, it's not even worth understanding, you know, like, and I think as I was writing the characters and thinking about their point of view and their mindset, I, I was trying to, I think, deal with the complexity, right? But in a way that would draw people in as opposed to have them think, oh, you know, um, this is a, you know, there's a, there's a character in the book who's a, a Syrian security official. And, you know, he's, a, um, he's introduced and you kind of meet him in the book and you think, oh, this guy is going to be the villain. And, uh, you know, he does a lot of despicable stuff in the book. Uh, but I think it'd be too simplistic to call him a villain in the story. You know, he's a he's a more complicated character than that. And so I wanted to get at some of that complexity, I think, which characterizes the human experience and, and draw that out of my characters, irrespective of whether they were the quote unquote good and, and bad guys, you know, which I think in the genre, uh, in spy fiction, you kind of you need good guys and bad guys. Um, but they don't have to be paper thin, right? They can be complicated. Your good guys can do bad things and your, your bad guys can do, can do good, good things. And I think that that, you know, to me is, is a more fair way of looking at humanity and, uh, and the way that people act, you know, in the middle of a conflict like this, whatever side they're on. And when you were at CIA, were you thinking at the time, this could be a great spy novel or did this idea for, for a novel come to you after you left? It really mostly came after I left. Um, you know, I honestly, look, Aaron, if I went back and I showed you the stuff that I wrote in 2014 when I left, um, you know, you would think it was terrible as I do now. I mean, it was really bad stuff, right? I mean, it was like not, a, there wasn't a plot. There wasn't really a story. You know, I think it was really the writing as a way to process what I had worked on and, and seen and lived through as I was working on, you know, Syria during the first you know, a few years of, of the uh, uprising and the conflict. I mean, it, it was um, really more of just a way to work through that stuff as opposed to anything structured or, or concrete. And so I think when I left, I, I kind of thought of the writing as um, a way to work through that stuff and not as something like, oh, hey, I want to write a novel. Um, but when I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to come back and actually spend more time writing, you know, I just loved the process of actually sitting down and, and writing so much that I got a little bit more serious, I think having some maybe personal distance from the conflict. Like I, I hadn't worked on Syria or the Middle East 
since 2014. And so I was able to be, I think, a little bit more structured in thinking about the plot and the characters and, and really trying to write something, you know, that I wanted to read and that I would find enjoyable to write, but that other people would also want to want to read. And, and those two things are not, you know, they're not always the same. Um, so it wasn't this thing where I was working on the topic in, at the CIA and thinking, oh man, this would be a great spy novel. I think, I actually am not sure that thought ever occurred to me. I think it was more as I got into it and realized that I liked the process of writing and found that to be, you know, um, energizing to me that, that a story kind of came out over time. So your book takes place in the early years of the Syrian war. And I'm curious now for how you look back on that period, um, how you would describe the, you know, the forces and, and uh, developments that kicked off this war, this brutal 10 year war. And are there any things about the popular narrative around the war that you think diverged from what the real reality was on the ground? Yeah, so I think, uh, think of how to unpack that. So, you know, those first few years, it, it's an interesting, and there's a reason I chose it for the setting of the book, obviously in large part because I've worked on it, but I think also because it sort of served as this bookend of, you know, at the very beginning of the crisis in March, really February, March of 2011, you know, it was, um, and I'll come back to some of the complexities in this, but let me just kind of paint some of the broad strokes. You know, I think early on it was, a, you know, a sort of um, protest movement that was largely uh, protests, largely nonviolent. It had shades of insurgency very early on, but it was largely driven by protests and by street action. And by the time you got to 2013, you had a very different conflict where that had pretty much all disappeared for a variety of reasons we can talk through. Uh, and it was replaced by civil conflict and, and probably by that time, you know, what you call a civil war. And so you kind of had this full range of experience in that, in that couple year period. And, and it was one of the most, um, you know, impactful and momentous periods of the conflict because so many of the dynamics that came to characterize it um, sprouted, you know, obviously in those first couple of years. And, you know, I think the, so many of the narratives about the war have become uh, grossly oversimplified that when you really kind of peel back and think about what was going on in that, in that time period, um, I think so much of the, you know, as, as you had to talk about, or the dynamics on the ground, it really was kind of this both and, right? So you had, um, very, you know, for, for Syria, what were unprecedented protests against the regime in, in many parts of the country. I think one of the things that got overlooked early on was how quiet some parts of the country were. The Alawites uh, dominated cities. Uh, many of the, you know, central Damascus and Aleppo early on were very quiet because you had significant portions of the population that, that feared what might come next and understood sort of that, you know, widespread unrest would be, uh, could be catastrophic. And so you had this really interesting, you know, I think there's been a tendency to kind of look at um, the early years through the lens of the, the activists and the oppositionists and, and not through the lens of uh, folks, you know, who, who sat it out or who had really vested interests in uh, not, you know, overturning the apple cart. So I think that's probably one thread, although I will say like, this is where I think we can often get worked around turned around a bit when we talk about Syria is that the country 
you know, there are so many different perspectives about the war and so many interests at play early on that you had on the one hand, you know, very, uh, what I think were, were, were reasonable and, and rational and, and, and sort of, you know, motivations we should applaud to get into the street and to, to demonstrate for more dignity and more opportunity. Um, you know, you had that and that was a very real thing. One of the things I'm trying to catch from my book is that people felt that way, that was real. There was real persecution at the hands of the security services. There was real um, repression politically, economically. You know, there was incredible mismanagement of the country that had occurred, um, you know, on, on Assad's watch. And so there are these tremendous forces that were pushing up and, and demanding these things. And, uh, and then, you know, on the other hand, you had a bunch of people who felt very afraid of what would come next. And so those two things existed, right? And they're both real. Um, and but I think that, was complex, a that complexity has been lost when we talked right. about that earlier. But even even before, um, you know, the full on, it became a full on war. I mean, wasn't there a sectarian element in the protests from the start, you know, like the chance of Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave? Yeah, so this is a, a, this is a great uh, this is a great example. So I tend to think so. the answer to your question is, yes, there was a sectarian element very early on. I do not think that um, the, well, let me, let me back up a second. It was clear, I think, to um, many, many, many Syrians that the, if the state were to weaken, I'm saying this like early on, even, even before protests started in Syria, right? When, when we're watching sort of Tunisia and Egypt and, you know, in late 2010, early 2011, and, and when Syrians look at Lebanon and how that civil war unfolded, and when Syrians looked at Iraq and how that conflict unfolded after our invasion, the organizing principle of, you know, sort of what happens in a multi-sectarian, multi-ethnic society in the Middle East right now when you break the central government um, is that the organizing principle can, can become sectarian um, or ethnic very, very quickly. That's, that's how the battle lines tend to get drawn. And I think a lot of Syrians understood that and got that and feared it. I, I will also say that early on, you had a tremendous amount of the energy in the protest movement that was not sectarian, that was very uh, cognizant of that dynamic and, and sought in the way that they organized and protested and in the way they tried to portray themselves and often authentically portrayed themselves, they were not sectarian. And you also had, to your point, groups that would grow in power over time, but that were there early on, uh, that were um, radically sectarian in their outlook and uh, looked at the crisis and, and, and sort of the, the destabilizing impacts it could have as an opportunity to upend, you know, sort of Assad and, and Alawite control in Syria. And I think that those forces were not as in my opinion, were not as strong early on as the sort of more broad-based, non-sectarian, uh, you know, groups early on, which were very fragmented and, and you know, not not organized. But I think both of those tendencies were there. But what quickly happened was the sectarian uh, narrative became the dominant one, and the groups that were able to sort of, you know, drive that narrative were the ones who ended up, you know, um, doing better in the in the war. And if I understand the perspective of your book correctly, as told through some of the um, CIA officials, some of the CIA characters in the book, how they talk about the war, 
that the Syrian government at first kind of waffled in their response to the protests. That there wasn't this like large scale violent crackdown initially. They waffled. They even tried to offer some limited political concessions. They released political prisoners. Looking back now, do you think it was a, it was a mistake for the opposition and their foreign allies not to engage with those concessions? Um, and maybe you could talk about what those concessions were and whether you think they were significant or just cosmetic. Yeah. So uh, I think you're, you're right um, that I'm sort of speaking through, I think the scene you, you're probably referring to is the one where I've got a couple, a couple CIA analysts at headquarters uh, briefing an outgoing case officer on what's going on in Syria. And uh, it is certainly my view that the, um, the Syrian for really, I would I'd probably call the first, I don't know, nine to 10 months of, of the conflict, so most of 2011, but, uh, uprising really at that point. Um, you know, the Syrian government response was, was um, uh, waffling is a perfect word, because what it was characterized by on, on the sort of concept, political concession side was a, um, I, would, I would argue, a, a too slow, too cosmetic, too sort of half-hearted um, platform whereby they did things like, you know, they, they repealed the emergency law that had been in place since, I think, 63, uh, but they didn't meaningfully change the posture of the security services toward society. Uh, they legalized other political parties, but made it uh, pretty clear because they, they basically the, the Ba'ath Party had been the dominant political party in society, uh, you know, going back to the 60s. And uh, they had a bunch of different um, sort of other kind of pro-regime groups that weren't the Ba'ath Party that were under this umbrella. They legalized other political parties, but kind of only um, created enough space for groups that the government could control to compete in things like municipal elections. Um, there were a number of, uh, I think, attempts very locally to deal with problematic security officials as sort of the protest movement began to um, spiral, you know, and you got the cycle of violence and protest and funerals and violence and it just kind of, uh, you know, it would keep things moving uh, that way, you know, they, they, they made an attempt to deal with some of these officials moving them around, um, trying to bring, you know, bring them back from Darab down in the south where the, some of the protests had started to Damascus. Uh, there were some small attempts to deal with the, uh, on the surface, with the, uh, the kind of patronage networks and the, and the uh, the 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 you know economic influence of Rami Makhlouf, Assad's cousin, but those were sort of paper paper thin. So I think you know my my view on uh, the sort of concession side of it in those early years was that things that probably six months earlier would have been welcomed as tremendous progress in the Syrian context uh, were were instead seen in the midst of what was going on in the region, and uh, which I'll get to in one second. The security uh, solution as the, you know, sort of regime viewed it that they were exercising in the first year, like it was, it sort of just, it was never going to be enough uh, to, to deal with the, un, with the sort of change that I think had happened in people's minds uh, about what was possible. And, and I think that the security approach that they adopted um, ultimately was uh, self, self-defeating because they were, um, you know, they were, trying to use their four principal security services 
to manage the crisis. And I think one of the things that to your point earlier has been really thrown out of whack when we talk about the first year of the war was, I mean, there weren't widespread military deployments uh, until late 2011, early 2012. It was the security services that were doing it. Now, sometimes quite militarized in, in terms of the weaponry and, and whatnot that they brought to they brought to bear, you know, against the protesters. But they didn't. The Syrian regime didn't really start its military crackdown using the actual military in you know until much much later. They were using the security services, and the problem with that was that they were using an instrument that had been sort of corrupted by uh, a couple things. One was or at least in the eyes of the population, have been corrupted by the fact that it was predominant, predominantly Alawite, uh, and, and it was policing and trying to secure a, a largely Sunni Arab population, uh, which created a, a sort of sectarian lens to the way that they dealt with the protests right off the bat. Um, even, if, even if no one was talking about it, it was there. And you know, secondly, these security services had this incredibly intimate relationship with the population, uh, because they were really one of the few effective levers of power that the regime had at that point in time. And, uh, and, and that bred this kind of malignant or malign intimacy between, you know, ordinary Syrians living in that are in homes or, or in a Damascus suburb and the principal group uh, required to, you know, sort of manage the protest. And so what happened was you ended up with, you know, in some places, it, you ended up with this really patchwork of responses where, you know, in some places, the security services were able to, um, you know, deal with the, de the local demands of the, of the protesters, and, and they were able to deal with the protests nonviolently, or they just let them happen and kind of, you know, maybe even burn themselves out. And in other places, they, they reacted um, with violence, and it killed people, and it led to this cycle of, you know, funerals and, and more protests, and it just spiraled. And so you had this tremendously, uh, you know, sort of clumsy overall response to the crisis that, you know, I think um, meant that it just, on the one hand, the, the Syrian regime never offered and couldn't in some respects offer enough to satisfy the demands of, the, you know, those out on the streets. And then on the other hand, they didn't have the tools at their disposal to really, uh, you know, deal with uh, the, the protests in a way that might sort of contain them, corral them and let them, um, you know, let them manage them. So, I think waffling's waffling's absolutely the right word. And when to you does the violence against the Syrian government uh, start? Because there are reports uh, from April in Dara and also uh, in Jishar al Shagur of of you know yeah. mass killings of Syrian government soldiers. So when to you did did the violent attacks on Syrian government forces begin? Well, so there were. Uh, I mean. I'm pretty sure that if you went back and looked at the body count as early as April of 2011, um, you would see Syrian uh, security officials in that in that tally, right? I mean, there was a this is the this is the thing about this war, right? It's sort of um, it's any kind of broad ideological narrative you try to bring to it. The conflict was so complicated, it's going to fight it, right? So if you try to argue. Uh, that everything was peaceful for the first six months. I mean, or the first nine months, it's crazy, right? Uh, there was there was the the sort of very early sort of seedlings of 
armed resistance against the government as as early as as sort of I'd probably say late March, early April. Uh, Jizr al Shagor, as you mentioned, which I think was I'm I'm now was it May of 2011 or was it June? I may have gotten it wrong. Yeah, I said April. It might have been later than that. I th- oh, well, so you it so, so in there right like pretty like in the first few months of the war. Um, I mean, I think over a hundred uh, security officials were killed uh, by by armed groups, you know, in Idlib. So, uh, and, and by the way, I mean that, you know, sort of that event was a real watershed for the Alawite dominated security services who looked at that and said, you know, this is the enemy we're fighting. And I think, uh, you know, and the flip side of what I just said about the ideology sort of is going to fight you on Syria, no matter what you, what you believe, you know, I think that the, it's true that, um, it's true that those armed groups were, were trying, there were armed groups early on that were trying to kill Syrian uh, officials and security services. And there were, you know, security officers, there were assassinations. It's also true that um, those security officials and, and the Alawite community more broadly were several steps in front of where the reality was on the ground in terms of their sort of paranoia, I think, um, and, and the demonization of the of the opposition more broadly. But you're absolutely right on Jizr al-Shagor that uh, that was a that was I think one of the first moments where uh, there was a a sort of coordinated attack against a security installation that resulted and I think if I recall correctly I believe those officers were um, many of many of them were beheaded uh, and and uh, it was a, it was a very brutal attack and and I think uh, quite sectarian I would imagine in its uh, in in its desired outcome and. What is your sense of when the foreign powers got involved, uh, you know, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, um, arming the insurgents um, and, and the U.S.? I mean, Timber Sycamore, the CIA program to arm uh, and train insurgents officially kicks off, I think, in 2012 or 2013. But there's that one document from the Defense Intelligence Agency that talks about shipments going from Benghazi, Libya to Syria as early as October 2011. Was the U.S. involved that early or was that just strictly the U.S.'s partners? What was the foreign role there? And, and, and yeah. when, to, when to you did it start? Well, so I'll, I'll give you an answer, Aaron, that I know is going to bug you, which is I can't talk about the American side of this, right? Um, other than to, to sort of direct you to, you know, um, Secretary, I'd, I'd probably direct you to Secretary Panetta and Secretary Clinton's books on some of this to, to get the timeline and, and sort of the scope and scale of the involvement. But um, I, I'll say that from the um, from the Iranian Hezbollah side, you know, when we when we look at sort of the military intervention, we're talking about about 2012. Um, in its, you know, in its early stages, late 2011, early 2012, um, when we are looking at the, uh, you know, sort of uh, Saudi, uh, Turkish side, uh, you know, I think we're looking at something that's in an organized fashion uh, happening a little bit later than that. So probably in about the middle of 2012. Um, and then obviously when we look at the and by the way, I mean, the, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, 
the, the, I, what I would argue is the sort of co the, the sort of coalition in the region, the the, the Gulf Arabs and, and the Turks supporting the Syrian opposition, uh, never is organized or as coherent or as focused um, as the Iranian Hezbollah uh, Russian intervention, uh, you know, in, in support of Assad. So much more fragmented on the kind of opposition opposition side. Uh, and then, of course, on the Russian side, you know, they've been providing uh, military equipment to the Syrians for, you know, decades. Um, there were, there was, you know, sort of state-to-state -state military sales that were ongoing in the early years of the war, and then the very kind of full-throated intervention uh, on the part of the Russians happened in September of, uh, of 15. Um, so I think, I think that kind of 20, 2012 was a real watershed year in that, in, in that respect, because it was a time when the Syrians really fully deployed their military against rebel held, uh, you know, pockets of the country in, in, in Homs, uh, in Husser, you know, um, that's when some of the conflict began and uh, the conflict began in Aleppo. Um, they deployed forces to, to Daraa in the south. And, and you had this sort of regionalization and internationalization of the conflict that started, uh, at, at, you know, at that same time. And obviously just, you know, <laughs> made, it, uh, made it much more violent. Right. And I understand there are aspects of that that you're still not allowed to, to talk about. Um, yeah. The... Uh... So now we know from declassified documents that there was an understanding inside the U.S. government that the U.S. was basically on the same side as Al Qaeda in Syria. There's that infamous email from Jake Sullivan to Hillary Clinton in February 2012, where he says Al Qaeda is on our side in Syria. There's also that that Defense Intelligence Agency report from August 2012, which talks about how the the Salafis, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Al Qaeda in Iraq are the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria. Do you recall you know, that being debated? Was there any debate about whether or not the US was gonna take the side of Al-Qaeda, our, our sworn enemy in Syria? Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, the Sullivan email you're quoting, if I remember the context correctly, was, was, was you know, sort of pointing out some of the you know, <laughs> the, the fact that it's, uh, this was a policy, you know, sort of problem from hell, right, uh, from the standpoint of an American administration that uh, it is trying to, um, is trying to diminish Assad and, uh, you know, isn't willing to commit a tremendous amount of national power to, to doing that. And, and it sort of has, you know, very weird uh, bedfellows in Syria as as a result, and, and I don't use bedfellows there in terms of actual, you know, uh, collaboration. I mean more in terms of just shared sort of shared strategic interest, uh, or at least the perception of shared strategic interest. I think you know anyone trying to argue that U.S. policy against Assad uh, has been a success, coherent, uh, you know, is 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 not you know thinking about the problem correctly i mean we have uh you know not done a good job of um aligning you know national resources against against objectives to to make that happen or 
conversely to um, modifying objectives, um, you know, to, to, to sort of accord with the reality of what we're willing to commit to the conflict. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anyone could, could argue that it's, that it's been a success. I think, you know, your, your, to the sort of point of your question on, on our, you know, connection or, or sort of the, the, the shared, the fact that we're, we're sort of anti-Assad and, and Al-Qaeda is anti-Assad, um, you know, that was, that was a tremendously problematic aspect of the conflict. And I think one that um, probably limited, and this is my own personal assessment, um, probably limited uh, what we were really willing to do to, uh, you know, unseat him, weaken him, because there was an understanding, uh, you know, on the part of the American government that the opposition to him, to Assad, was problematic. And I think that uh, that realization was was powerfully in the minds of, you know, the Obama administration officials that were making policy in those early days and, and among many other things. But that, you know, I, I think that that uh, limited their appetite to get more involved. My problem there, though, in terms of this notion that they that limited their involvement is that I think if that were true, they would have shut down the program completely. Instead, the U.S., you know, spent a lot of money, you know, according to the Washington Post, it was a billion dollars per year on on the CIA program to uh, arm and train insurgents. And I know that that wasn't directly arming Al Qaeda, but a lot of these yeah. weapons did end up in the hands of Al Qaeda. I mean, that's what helped them capture Idlib, if I understand the history correctly. And I, so I'm just wondering if there was a serious awareness of that, that, you know, that the U.S. weapons were ending up in the hands of Al Qaeda and their allies, and whether there there was some just awareness that here we are arming the people who attacked the U.S. on 9/11 and who we were waging a two-decade uh, global war on terror against. Yeah. Well, so let me let me. Um, there's a, there's certainly are, are aspects of this that are hard. You know, I can't really speak to, but. I, I, let me let me put it this way. I think that the original sin of much of our policy, and it's gonna it's gonna directly get to the point you're raising, Aaron, which I think is is a good one. Um, the original sin of the policy, in my opinion, was that when you when you sort of rewind the clock to 2010, 2011, and you look at the whole region, uh, if you're you know at the National Security Council, if you're in the White House, you look at Tunisia, you look at Egypt. You look at Libya, you look at uh, you know, the protests in Bahrain, you look at some of the stuff in Eastern Saudi, you look at Yemen, uh, you, you have this view and it's not hard to get there, although it's you know, proven to be spectacularly wrong. It's not hard to get to a point where you say, there's, there's a sort of fall of the wall moment happening here across the region and you know, there's a domino effect and it's just sort of historic, it's, it's like an inevitability that these places, like these governments are gonna collapse, right? And I'm talking about the first six to nine months of 2011, right? You sort of, you can, you can not be analytically nuts and kind of come to that view. And I think the assumption, which of, of course it's wrong, right? Because Syria is Syria, it's not Libya, and it's, it's you know, not Tunisia and all these places are different and, um, you know, it, it's not right, but you can have this view that like, hey, it's just, stuff's just gonna happen. 
right? It's going to like, we're going to get what we want out of this for free. And that's sort of a coarse way of putting it. But I think that that, that assumption then underlay this idea that we didn't have to do that much uh, to get the outcome that we wanted, which was a political transition in, in Damascus. And, um, you know, like we could just stand, kind of stand back in some ways. And I, and I think as, as time went on, um, the uh, policy proposals that are laid out in Secretary Panetta and Secretary Clinton's book about what to do with respect to Syria and the opposition start to become like ways where we can maybe get a little bit of what we want for something that to, you know, Washington may not appear to be that expensive. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a way to sort of still have some skin in the game, still push toward an objective that we want uh, without having to, to undergo a more sort of full-throated, you know, military intervention. And so I think it's a little bit of, you know, again, if those proposals are true, like cutting the, you know, splitting the baby in half in a way um, and trying to get something that we want for not a whole lot. And, and I think that, again, what I think underlay that was this view that like, okay, it's just, he's going to fall at some point. Um, you know, we others may not have to do that much to, to achieve that outcome. I think that was the kind of fundamental analytical problem with that. I get that that's the outlook, but my, my problem here is the reality on the ground, as was acknowledged privately by Sullivan and by the Defense Intelligence Agency, is that the primary drivers of the insurgency were groups like Al-Qaeda. So, you know, when so this talk about there not being a heavy cost and that Assad will fall easily. I mean, yeah. If it's consciously done knowing it's going to give rise to Al-Qaeda, I'm just surprised at the ease with which this was carried out and, and why there, I mean, to the extent that I, I'm aware of what happened internally, at least why there wasn't uh, more more debate around that. Because, you know, again, we're allying with, uh, not with, you know, freedom-loving moderate rebels, but with groups groups like Al-Qaeda who and who did commit very horrible atrocities even inside Syria. A as your book actually touches on, you you don't shy away from talking about atrocities committed by, by all sides. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> It, it's because it's true, right? I think that the, uh, you know, both both uh, you know, re rebel and regime have committed terrible atrocities. Although I do think that, and I put most of the, uh, you know, weight, the moral weight for the for the, you know, bloodshed and and certainly much more of the body count has come from the Syrian regime itself. The, um, the moral weight, why? Because they're defending their country from, you know, a, a foreign funded proxy force. So do they not have the right to defend themselves from that? Well, again, I think, I mean, Aaron, this is where I think that the, you know, they, I put more of the moral weight on them because they're the stronger party and, and, and were the stronger party early on and, and enter the government of the country. And so have a responsibility, I think, you know, to, to hopefully at least be trying to provide some kind of security and, and, and stability for, and, and, and dignity for the, the people that they govern. And I think that my, my view of the, uh, my view of what they are, what they were fighting uh, early on, uh, you know, and, and, and in particular, that's where I like to kind of take that snapshot of 2011, right? Because it was before 
you really had a tremendous amount of foreign involvement in this conflict. And, uh, and I think the, the battle space at that point was primarily Syrian. And they were fighting, uh, you know, they were fighting or trying to suppress or trying to manage uh, protesters. And they were trying to manage, uh, you know, sort of budding insurg- or, or, or fight budding insurgents who are primarily Syrian. And uh, it's not to say that there haven't been foreign fighters involved in the conflict. Of course there have. But early on, the predominant, uh, you know, in my view, the predominant sort of nationality fighting in Syria uh, was, was Syrian. If there were sectarian militias in your town and they were being armed and supported from abroad, like say Saudi Arabia, would you yep. think it would be fair for your government to respond, including responding militarily? Oh yeah, look, and I, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue here that, uh, you know, in particular, if you take the snapshot of the Alawite community and you look at, let's, 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 so let's, let's, let's you know, let's go with where you're headed here. So, like, let's put aside the fact that there are like real mistakes made on the part of the regime and a real, I think, sort of analytical problem that they had in, in viewing the crisis in, in a sort of appropriately early on. I don't think they had a good way to look at it. I think they looked at it like it was the 80s. And I think that was not right. You know, there were shades of it, but it, but it, was, it was a gross oversimplification. The 80s is of, in the Muslim Brotherhood uprising. Yeah, it's in the Muslim okay. Brotherhood uprising, yeah. right? They, they, the regime internalized it, and those guys around Assad internalized it through that lens. And there was enough on the ground. Like we talked about Jusser al-Shagur, we talked about some of the insurgent groups early on. Like there was enough on the ground where you could take that and you weren't like fully wrong, right? But it was not an inc- it was not a complete view of what they were up against. And uh and they they messed up, you know, in their in their early assessment of of what they were facing. Now if you fast forward, right, just a little bit, like, so let's put, let's put that aside for a second and just talk about the reality of like, hey, I'm a, and like the character in my book, right? I'm Ali Hassan, made up guy, right? But he's an Alawite, his brother's an Alawite. They came from, you know, the, the Alawi mountains in uh, sort of Northwestern Syria along the coast. Like they, their family owned businesses in homes. They come to Damascus. They're sort of entrenched in, the security services, not because they're like, you know, fanatical Assadists, but because this is a way to, you know, sort of make money and, and, and to just be a part of a society that had traditionally not uh, welcomed, you know, uh, Alawites. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a very, you know, you sort of, uh, I, I think, or at least I'm trying to get out in the book, like, if you're in that you know, if you're that person, right, and and you are looking at the dynamics on the ground in late 2011, particularly early 2012, like, and you're looking at what's going on on the other side and the growing militarization of the, uh, and, and, the and the sectarianism that had become much more common on the part of the, the, you know, insurgents and the rebels, you are absolutely going to do whatever you think is necessary to uh, beat them. Right. And, and you are going to come at this with a view, which is which is what a lot of these, you know, Alawite security officials did. Uh, they came at this with a with a long historical view of what had happened in the 80s with the, you know, the, the Muslim Brotherhood uprising. 
uh, and the sectarian nature of that assassination campaign and the violence that had been meted out on the Alawis. They're going to come at this and they're going to look at it from the standpoint of stories told from their their grand you know grandmothers and grandfathers about being in pseudo slavery, you know, uh, prior to you know the early 1900s, and and they're going to be like, well, there's no future for me in this country if I don't do what uh, is necessary to survive. And I think that 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 lens, right, is um, you know, we can say, hey, you guys made mistakes to get to that to get to that point. Uh, but the 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 urge you're talking about to sort of protect yourself, protect your family, to uh, you know, uh, protect something, the institutions that you are running uh, is is very real, and it's one that I think again, when we get to this sort of cartoonish villain us versus them thing in Syria, like it sort of breaks down and you miss that point. But you know, these are these are real people too, and uh, they've done a lot of everyone you know has done a lot of despicable stuff. But these are these are people, and uh, they're they're responding to you know. Uh, very real threats that they feel. So, and that's what I'm wondering. I mean, was there an awareness inside the U.S. government, inside CIA at that time, that the militias that the U.S. was arming, you know, including in the Free Syrian Army, uh, like when they launched that operation on Latakia uh, in 2003, August 2013, that you know there was sectarian killings going on. I mean, Human Rights Watch even found this that there was what they called the systematic killing of entire families during that operation by, including by militias that were backed, backed and armed by the U.S. government. Yeah, I mean, I can't really comment on the U.S. government position there, but I can give you mine if that's helpful. Please, yeah. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, I think that it is, uh, the case that when we looked at you know Syria in, in the same way that kind of when you look at um, you know what happened in Afghanistan, right? That there's a, a tendency to kind of uh, think you're going to have. Well, let me think of how to put this the right way. And I'm sorry, I'm uh, trying to dance around stuff. Um, I think there's an understanding that Al-Qaeda affiliated groups and sort of Salafi jihadist groups were the primary engine of the insurgency. And there was that, that was, that became, uh, you know, that sort of, I think, viewpoint was widely known um, inside you know, the U.S. government as it became, you know, much more widely accepted as the conflict went on. But what we never were really able to do was to come up with a way that we could sort of treat the realities of that, you know, of the, of the war, the conflict, the battle space as it, you know, sort of got, went from uprising and protest to, to civil war. We were never quite able to square the, that reality with the policy around what do we do about Assad? Those two things were sort of fundamentally uh, in tension with one another. What I don't, what I don't right? get there is, what I don't get is if you know that the primary driver of the insurgency is Al-Qaeda and their allies, I mean, what right do we have to empower them? And I mean, is it not preferable? I mean, even if you presuppose that the U.S. has the right to overthrow a foreign government, which I don't, but even from, the narrow, from a narrow point of view of like the U.S. government, 
why is it preferable to um, continue to fuel an Al-Qaeda-dominated insurgency than just leave Syria alone and let Syrians handle their own government? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not sure I would disagree with that statement. Right. I mean, like, like we, we could, you know, the, the, the sort of $64,000 question, right, about, about Syria, when you kind of go back and you look at those first couple of years, is like, should we have, you know, should we have done more? Should we have done less? Right. Because everyone looks at what, what happened and they're like, well, that's not, you know, we didn't get the outcomes that, that we wanted in any respect. Right. Assad's still there. And you have, you know, um, you know, a, a sort of an insurgency that was increasingly dominated by its more radical fringes. And so, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that when we go back and we kind of look at what happened, um, that, and especially if you sort of just look at U.S. experience more broadly over the past 20 years, right, uh, we, uh, from a very narrow standpoint, can be quite effective at breaking governments. We did it in Iraq. We, uh, you know, did it or helped do it in Libya. Um, we did it in Afghanistan. Uh, but we're not good at building things that are, you know, representative you know, democracy is kind of a loaded word, but just that, like rebuilding something back from that, like the track record is clearly not good. And uh, my opinion on Syria, you know, is that the fundamental mistake of the policy was to get over our skis on what we said should happen when, you know, from a geostrategic standpoint, not a human standpoint, right, but a geostrategic standpoint, uh, Syria is not a, you know, it's a country of 20 223 million people pre-war uh you know it's it's not a it's not a massive uh u.s geostrategic interest right so i think we uh we probably should have uh you know married up that reality with what what we chose to do and in terms of what the geostrategic interest was and again i i personally don't accept the premise that we have the right to overthrow foreign governments no matter sure. what our interest is, but just taking the U.S. government position that we do have the right, just for a second, do you know what the geostrategic interest was? Because you know you have Assad before the war trying to play ball a little bit with the U.S. He um, he you know uh, held and tortured prisoners at the behest of of the CIA. Uh, there was talks about opening with the West. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry came to visit him. Uh, during the first Gulf War, I mean, they were part of they they supported the U.S. effort. So there, there's a history there of you know some attempts to engage with the West. And and meanwhile, you have a war that the U.S. knows is empowering Al Qaeda. So and certainly it can't be that we cared about democracy because our allies, for example, in this effort are some of the world's you know worst dictatorships like 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 Saudi Arabia and Qatar. So. Was it the fact that Syria basically is allied with Hezbollah and Iran? Is that, do you think, the main imperative here, or or what was the what was the guiding motive? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know, I think that's what you mentioned is certainly one of them, right? Like, there is which which we could have a much longer argument about whether or not that in any way, um, you know whether or not like removing Assad, right? If you just got rid of him, 
whether what emerged would have been less, uh, you know, sort of in line with Iran and Hezbollah, I think is a, a different question. But I think that's certainly uh, that's certainly one of them, right? I think that if I were thinking more specifically about just the the way that, again, my view that we thought about the policy during uh, during the you know the early years of the war, I think it was I think it was primarily driven by um, a sense that this was a I don't think it was about democracy necessarily, but I think there was a uh, a view that Assad's violence against the Syrian population was or had sort of you know. Uh, cross some kind of threshold that we weren't willing that at least rhetorically right we weren't willing to to tolerate and again it was coming on the heels of all these other regional states sort of looking like they were about to go and so it made our you know sort of willingness to jump in with this view that he should he should go much easier to do so i think it was a I think it was on the one hand this idea that we have a member of the resistance axis or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, sort of wobbling, and a perspective as the conflict worsened that he had lost. And again, I'm not addressing what I think is clearly the um, hypocrisy on the part of, you know, or sort of at least like the fact that we clearly work with very unrepresentative governments all over the country, all over the world, right? Um, if they share our sort of broader strategic interests, that's clearly a fact. Um, but I think we came to view his violence against, you know, Syrians. And again, I'm speaking about my perception of the way that policymakers viewed it. Um, I think we came to see that as sort of, you know, he had lost, he had lost his sort of moral right to to govern and. I'm sure we could have a longer conversation about whether or not that's actually true, but I think well, those those two yeah, things you can imagine that, yeah. created the yeah. created the you know the fuel at that point to to say he needs to, he needs to go right. I mean, meanwhile, you had the U.S. help Saudi Arabia crush the uprising in Bahrain, uh, where there the U.S. Navy has the fifth fleet there, and you know as we look, we don't have to rehash the early uh, period, but I when I look at it and and I I picked this up from your book and also speaking to you today, I see even those early months. Those uh, of the conflict is not being um, quite the picture we were told that there was actually violence against the Syrian government from the start. And regardless of whether you accept that characterization or not, I just don't see I don't see how one can see the answer to vi in initial violence, the answer being more violence and, you know, m billions and billions of dollars in weapons going into Syria with, you know, extremists coming in, jihadis coming by the tens of thousands across the border in Turkey. I mean, Joe Biden himself admitted that uh, U.S. allies were funding al-Nusra and, and they were the most extremist elements. Our biggest problem is our allies. Our allies in the region were our largest problem in Syria. The Turks were great friends, and I have a great relationship with Erdogan, which I've just spent a lot of time with. The Saudis, the Emiratis, etc. What were they doing? They were so determined to take down Assad and essentially have a proxy Sunni-Shia war, what did they do? They poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens, thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad. 
except that the people who were being who were being supplied were Al Nusra and Al Qaeda and the extremist elements of jihadis coming from other parts of the world. I mean, everyone knew that. It's common knowledge now. So I don't see how the answer to a, a perception of early violence on the part of Assad, the answer then becomes just massive violence involving the world's most powerful governments flooding the country with weapons. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I would be, I'm pretty sympathetic to that view. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you can, you can sort of on the one hand, uh, argue, and then again, this is, I'll just come back to this point around sort of ideology, ideology kind of breaking down on the shoals of what actually happened in Syria. Like you can argue that the Assad regime, which I would, is a, you know, essentially extremely ruthless, morally reprehensible militia right now that has done atrocious things inside Syria to the to many Syrians and that from a moral standpoint um, it is done from a macro moral standpoint it has done absolutely repugnant things to stay in power that is true you can also argue that uh, the United States wouldn't have been able to uh, you know, broadly affect the outcome of a conflict there without doing much more than we did and much more than we were willing to do. And as a result, uh, you know, we should have been more honest early on about what we were really willing uh, to do and, and to commit to in Syria. And I think that- And would you say also uh, be more honest know, about- holding, Would you say also be more honest about who we were actually supporting? Because the narrative we got publicly was that we were, these are all moderate rebels. Right, which it sounds it's it's yeah. pretty clear now that that was not the case. Yeah, I think that the so the you sort of drill into a good point here. I I think that the patchwork again. Th this is where like when you when you looked at all the groups that were active in Syria from an opposition standpoint, in like let's just call it like 2012, right, which is when you had the regionalization of the conflict. Really, I think starting. In, in force from all sides, Iran, Hezbollah, but then the sort of anti-Assad access to. And, you know, I think when you look at the dynamics on the ground, then you could sort of uh, build an, any narrative that you wanted um, about who was active and, and who might have a chance if, you know, supplied with the right stuff to, to, to make an impact on the battlefield, right? And so you could, you could point to groups at that time that, uh, did not appear to have any Al Qaeda uh, affiliation, uh, and and were and any of them powerful? Were, were any of them powerful or and incredible? Yes, but but uh, the groups, and I and 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 this is again, I'll give you my my view here. The groups that at that point were. Uh, the most battle hardened and were, uh, you know, had, had the best people had, uh, you know, the best funding sources and were gathering sort of the energy on the ground um, were increasingly at that time, uh, Salafi jihadist groups. Um, and, and that was, that was a reality of, of that, that time in the battle space where I think you, 
it was incredibly chaotic and complex. And there were hundreds of groups that varied from, you know, some more organized outfits like, you know, at the time, I guess with the RL Sham, uh, you know, or Liwal Islam that had very, you know, sort of Salafi jihadist uh, credentials at that point, um, you know, inside Syria, all the way to, you know, other groups um, under sort of the Free Syrian Army brand that, uh, you know, that did not. And so I think at the time, again, I'll just restate, I think that the uh, space was chaotic enough where if you were sort of trying to pick a winner or pick people, like you could, you could uh, come up with, with a different answer, uh, depending on your, your sort of predisposed, uh, you know, notions about Assad and what you wanted in Syria. Who to you is the most credible moderate group that if they had succeeded, if they had gotten more support from, say, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, that if they had won, that they would have ushered in a, um, you know, a, a, a democratic uh, form of government? Oh, I mean, I don't think that was ever in the cards. Right. Like, I guess what I'm what I'm saying, Aaron, to your question is, I think there were groups at the time who who were legitimate Syrian actors and who were not, or, you know, sort of expressly uh, solidly jihadist. I, I do not think uh, that a uh, that it would have been possible for like the Saudis to raise <laughs> or the Qataris to raise an army uh, that would have been uh, able to, to beat back uh, or that they would have ever wanted to raise an army that would have been sort of, you know, moderate Sunni opposition to Assad. I think, I think by the time the conflict had worsened in 2012, 2013, that was no longer in the cards. I know that there were peaceful protesters against Assad, but in terms of the armed groups, is there one armed group in particular that the U.S. supported that you view as particularly credible? Aaron, you keep asking about the U.S. support. You know I can't talk you can't about talk, that. Ref, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you're not that sorry, though. Um, <laughs> it's my job, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really think I can uh, answer the question around, uh, you know, the, the sort of American side of that, that equation. Um, what, I, what I will say is that Early on, some of the um, some of the kind of more uh, is what you'd call the FSA kind of defectors, right? Um, it it was not it was not obvious uh, that well. Let me put it this way: they appear like there were like hundreds and hundreds of different armed groups on the ground, right? And you know those groups, there were definitely members of the insurgency that were not uh, expressly Salafi jihadist, right? Small neighborhood groups, um, you know, some of the groups that ended up in Turkey, like it, but they lost pretty quickly in the, in the battle space of 2012 and 2013 to the bigger ones like RR, Liwal Islam, those kind of, those kind of groups. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned Turkey and this is why I, I just find this, this this uh, hodgepodge of groups confusing because now you have you know Turkey now using some of these same groups that were backed by the U.S. Uh, and and its allies now you know committing uh, crimes against the Kurds in um, on behalf of of Turkey basically Turkey using them as their militia force inside of Syria I mean is is, yeah. is that fair to say that that's what 
a lot of these groups became just basically a proxy for Turkey who are now committing crimes against Kurds, including Kurds with whom the U.S. is allied? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, yes, right? I mean, I think the, you know, the sort of the Turks have, I mean, you know, a good example right now is the relationship with um, HTS, right, in uh, in Idlib. Um, Turks have military, military relationship with them, influence, uh, you know, have, have sort of used them as a pointy tip of the spear uh, against against Assad, and in some cases, the, you know, the other some other Kurdish, or sorry, Turkish allied militias have been used against uh, Kurdish groups, right? So it's um, uh, the, the the Kurdish, or sorry, the Turkish policy there, you know, is uh, is very much sort of anti, you know, w- what they would I think see as like sort of counterterrorism and. Uh, and uh, counter refugee, but the way they would define the terrorism side is, is expressly against, uh, you know, the Kurds, right? And and uh, the militias that they uh, see as aligned with the with the PKK. Um, and, and from a refugee standpoint, trying to keep, you know, uh, keep uh, Idlib free from you know uh, spilling over uh, into into Turkey. So I, I think our you know, the, the Turkish policy, um, you know, in Syria uh, is obviously not not in alignment with ours in, in many respects and uh, and has been very, uh, you know, they've been very willing to, to work with um, to work with Salafi jihadist groups to, to sort of uh, allow Turkish territory to be a transit point for, you know, um, Al Qaeda linked individuals because I think they see the destruction of Assad and sort of the containment and hopefully destruction from their standpoint of, uh, you know, um, Kurdish, uh, de facto Kurdish uh, autonomy as being the kind of principal, uh, principal objectives of their Syria policy. And they've been very, very willing, I think, to deal with blowback uh, to, to achieve those ends. All right. I've almost kept you uh, over our agreed upon time. So I, uh, I understand you'll have to <laughs> all go good. So and I, I really appreciate you uh, being receptive to my questions. Um, I, I just have two more questions. Chemical weapons plays a, a major role in your book. Um, I'm wondering, have you heard of the OPCW scandal and these whistleblowers inside the OPCW who uh, investigated the alleged chemical attack in Duma in April 2018? This is long after you departed the CIA. I'm wondering if you followed yeah. that if, if you followed that story at all and what you think of it. So I've I've only seen the I haven't like let me put it this way I've seen the reports that you're talking about but not the like I haven't dug into any of the evidence cited. Um, my, my understanding, if I'm remembering the ones you're speaking of, is that there's a um, line of argument that goes that rebel groups conducted the attack. Am I thinking of the right thread? Oh yeah, I mean, there's certainly that um, that uh, theory in in many cases, including in Ghouta 2013. But certainly, yes, in the case of Duma, April 2018, you have these OPCW whistleblowers who say that their investigation found no evidence of a chemical weapons attack, and these whistleblowers haven't said that they believe it's staged. Although that's kind of the inference of their report, and you know, there's been a lot of documents that have come out, including the leaked original report that was essentially kept from the public. But it says the, the conclusion of the original report was that there was no 
chemical attack in Duma, or no evidence of a chemical attack in Duma. And if you read between the lines, they're suggesting that they're open to the possibility that this was indeed staged by the rebels there, which were at the time Jay Shal Islam, funded yeah, by yeah. Saudi Arabia. I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't followed that one closely. Um, I do know, I mean, they're, if I'm remembering correctly, back to sort of some of the open source stuff early in the conflict, I mean, there's obviously a desire on the part of, um, you know, Nusra and others uh, to, you know, gain access to chemical weapons stores, uh, certainly a desire to sort of frame, uh, you know, uh, the regime for for attacks if they, if they could. And so I think, you know, that would certainly uh, make sense for, you know, from the rebel side. I think the other thing that would make sense is just the Syrian regime using it too. So I couldn't speak to any of the specifics of the, of the, you know, um, what actually happened, but just, you know, suffice it to say that most of the chemical weapons attacks that have occurred uh, during the war have been perpetrated by the regime, but that, of course, you know, on the opposition side, on the rebel side, um, I think there would be plenty of reason to, <laughs> to try to, um, you know, uh, frame uh, the Syrian government for, for using it as well. So I, I couldn't speak to it from a specific standpoint, but from a motivation standpoint, that'd be how I think about it. You probably can't speak to this, but I'm going to ask anyway. There, uh, Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg in 2016 that James Clapper came to him uh, about Ghouta, the uh, chemical attack in Ghouta in August 2013, in which you know hundreds of people were, were killed by sarin. That Clapper came to him and told him that the intelligence was not a slam dunk. Are you privy to any of that intelligence or anything you can say about it? Um, because that revelation, you know, in my mind, coupled with other reporting from people like Seymour Hersh, who reported on, again, documents from the Defense Intelligence Agency that raised suspicion that Al-Qaeda had a major sarin production program, uh, that Porton Down, the British military lab, had found that the samples were not a match between uh, the samples found in Ghouta and the samples known to be in the Syrian government stockpile. In terms of Clapper telling Obama that it's not a slam dunk, a reference, by the way, to George Tenet of the CIA's infamous comments during the Iraq war. Is there anything about that that you can speak to? Nothing specific I could speak to, um, but I can offer you a, a broader comment about my view of the Syrian government's use of chemical weapons in the conflict, which would be, um, you know, they began using them in like 2012 and continued using them uh, throughout the, you know, throughout the conflict up until uh, and then after the, you know, sort of uh, disarmament effort with the Russians, uh, where I think, you know, the stuff that you're citing can come in and which I don't have any specific information about, but I think would sort of fit with the, again, the motivations and the, the ideology and the standpoint of some of the very extreme, uh, you know, rebel groups in the Syrian civil war would be that, uh, in a, in a similar way to the Syrian regime viewing the use of those weapons as a, helpful method of terror and control of the battlefield in some spaces and just frankly you know something to use that they didn't feel like they would be punished for um i think that the other side of the coin <laughs> the the sort of you know sunni sectarian groups that that um, you mentioned uh would would have a similar incentive to not only use it potentially if they could but to um you know also try to uh you know, 
make it appear as though the Syrian government had used it in an effort, particularly early on, to compel intervention. And so I think there's, again, from a motivational standpoint, I think all that makes sense. But, um, you know, I couldn't speak to any of the specifics that you're talking about. So I get that your perspective is that Syria is definitely guilty of some chemical attacks in Syria, but you're open to the possibility that some of these attacks could have been carried out by insurgents or uh, some of these incidents could have been staged by insurgents uh, inside Syria. Yeah, is that I mean, fair? look, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not speaking to that from a specific like I'd have to look into, you know, a few of the incidents that you're talking about in a in a much more structured way than I have, because obviously in the book, right, uh, we have, you know, this, the Syrian regime planning a chemical attack. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think from an opposition standpoint, um, you know, we talk about some of the groups that, you know, <laughs> have fought the Assad regime, I think uh, there would be, they would, they would, they would seek to have that capability. Um, and I think that, uh, again, I'm not familiar with any reporting that would suggest that they were able to achieve it. And they certainly didn't have it on the industrialized level that Syrians did, which is why any conversation, I think, on chemical weapons inside Syria needs to start with the government's use of them. But I think these other groups would certainly have, you know, the desire uh, to, to do the same. All right. Well, I, I've, uh, challenged you enough. So we're going to agree to disagree on some things there. I, we're going to um, wrap. So I guess your thoughts on the situation now, I, I, I was in Damascus in June and people are suffering. Uh, people are suffering. Yeah. You know, I saw the destruction of Duma, you know, destroyed by the Russian bombings uh, and people can't rebuild. And a lot of people there blame U.S. sanctions. I'm wondering if you think there's any appetite in Washington to basically admit, acknowledge that this war is over. Uh, and that it's the Syrian people now who are suffering the consequences. I mean, these, these sanctions don't hurt, I think, people in government. They hurt the population. Um, and um, your thoughts on whether there's any shift under the Biden administration to being willing to uh, change, change the approach, change the U.S. policy after 10 years of war um, is over and, and didn't achieve its goals of, of ousting Assad. Yeah, well, I think... Uh... Supposedly, there's a there's a policy review going on right now on Syria, um, but you know I'm not. I'll, I'll be interested to see if, you know if something really tangible comes out of that. I mean, the problem with the the sanctions, at least the the, the Caesar sanctions. Um, I mean, there's so many different layers of sanctions on Syria now; it's almost mind numbing. Um, you know, it's an act of Congress, which makes it complicated to undo. Um, we've been pretty uneven in actually implementing them. But you're right that the sanctions regime that we have in place right now is this kind of strange appendage that has been patched together on Syria policy over the past 10 years and, you know, isn't really, um, you know, it, it's, it's contributing, obviously, to uh, suffering inside Syria. It's contributing to, you know, complications that NGOs have with getting aid in. It's, um, you know, it's sort of a country and sector specific view, um, which which has all kinds of knock on problems associated with it. it. It doesn't do a great job of getting to the sort of deep, uh, you know, funding networks underneath the regime that that prop continue to prop it up. So it's not like a super effective tool. Uh, so I would I would hope that there'd be an effort to, um, you know, 
rationalize it in some way or to to come up with a better Syria approach, uh, because I think that the you know as, as a tool to affect some kind of behavioral change, it's clear that the sanctions regime isn't isn't really working. Um, and and you know I I would agree to some degree it, it is having an impact clearly on on ordinary Syrians. Although I do think that the sort of warlordism and the you know just complete breakdown of the country and 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 uh, you know the sort of shattering of the economy into these pretty uh, you know into into kind of more uh, yeah warlord governance in a lot of respects is probably has a greater uh, and the collapse of frankly the Lebanese economy yeah. and banking system is probably having a greater impact than the sanctions are but you know it's it's the sanctions are clearly not an effective tool for changing regime behavior or for trying to depose it or anything like that and you know I'd, I'd hope there'd be more clarity brought to the overall policy when when and if the administration comes out of this review. Well, look, and and this speaks to my to my broader point. When I think about Syria, it's even if you think Assad is the devil, you know, that he's worse than Al-Qaeda, um, you know, war will lead to horrible things. I mean, you know, his government is using, you know, so is is using old Soviet weaponry, you know, Vietnam era weapons to defeat a, a foreign insurgency. So in the in the process, the society will break down, warlordism, uh, warlordism will. Uh, will uh, 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 erupt, uh, corruption will increase. I mean, all the horrible things, there's nothing positive that could come out, I think, of a, of a multi-billion dollar war. And that's why I don't understand why even now that it's over, the sanctions, which only exacerbate the impact of war, uh, continue. And, and, and I look at Syria, I, I know before the war, it was not a perfect place. I mean, it was hard to be a government critic. I know people who have suffered under the Syrian government. But it was a stable country, right? I, I think you you know this having covered Syria. There was universal health care. There were high levels of education. There was food, food self sufficiency. And now I look at a country that's you know has a lot of rubble and is being kept deliberately in rubble by, in my opinion, U.S. sanctions by design. So I don't see how that can possibly seem to be in the best interest of the Syrian people. That's my that's my closing rant. I'll let you, David, uh, leave us with some final words. And including, by the way, I'm curious what you're going to tackle next uh, in your uh, spy thriller canon. Yeah, well, let me, so, um, uh, you know, I think, look, uh, let me close with first a pitch for the book, if you'd allow me, Aaron. Which Please, is, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I think the, uh, irrespective of, of sort of your, you know, view on just the, your political bent on Syria over the past 10 years. And, and, and Aaron, I hope you could attest to this too, right? You and I, I think we agree on some things, we disagree on others, but, you know, I'd hope that as you dug into the book, you kind of saw that, um, you know, we're trying to deal pretty realistically and honestly with some of this stuff, right? And, and from a human level, right? Stripping aside a lot of the, um, the high level uh, politics of it, I hope. And so I'd hope that someone who's interested in Syria from any lens, right? Whether it's, um, you know, really just any lens at all um, that you'd come to the book and you'd be interested in it and interested in engaging with the world that's been created because, you know, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of individuals. Um, so that'd be my, my sort of, you know, plea to, plea to your listeners and, and audiences. Uh, you know, this is a book written by a, you know, former CIA guy, but uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that I think will surprise you uh, about Syria and, and about the CIA. And, and I'd encourage anyone with an interest in the country to sort of engage with it, hopefully, honestly, and authentically. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what's next, I'm, uh, I do have more serious outlined, but I'm working on a, 
uh, a Russia-focused book right now um, with a whole new set of characters, obviously a new setting, and it's uh, it's in the present day. So I'm really um, trying to kind of you know, take some of the same themes of really dealing realistically with the U.S.-Russia rivalry and 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 in particular the conflict or sort of the spy war between you know Russian intelligence services and the CIA um, and and at the same time uh, you know to to deal realistically with with the CIA uh, both for all the wonderful good things it does and and you know some of the warts as well so uh, that's that's what's next for me. Well, David, I look forward to having you back on to discuss uh, your Russia book. It, it sounds interesting. And I really appreciate you taking the time, the extra time, too, to speak to me about uh, your new book. David McCloskey is a former CIA analyst. His new book, The Spy Thriller, Damascus Station, is out now. David, thank you very much. You bet, Aaron. Great to be with you.